Welcome back. This is Basic Bible 101, being taught by Margie Smith. I want to begin today's lesson by with a quick review of our last lesson. We have been covering the book of Judges, and our last lesson was on the first judge that we focused on. Her name was Deborah, and we discovered that Deborah was used mightily of the Lord, um, even though she was a woman, and in those days that was not necessarily a position of honor at all. It was usually seen more as property than as someone some the rest of the uh, people might follow. So we see that there's a great uh, way that God can use, e no matter who you are or in what situation you're in, God can use you. And one of the things that we learned about in from the very first part of the book of Judges was that the people of Israel who had just come into the promised land that they had uh, Joshua had led them into the promised land and had they had conquered a lot of the local tribes and yet they had let quite a few of the tribes stick around and so they ran into this problem that the Israelites began to take on some of the customs of the local people in the area, one of which was idol worship. We talked a little bit last week about the importance of destroying idols in your life or anything that takes your attention away from the Lord. And by that I mean things that you would rather worship than worship God. So those would be, um, for example, if you would rather uh, spend time in any particular activity than in prayer or in um, just honoring God. And that doesn't mean that your the activities you're involved in don't honor God. They certainly can. But if that becomes the focus, if that becomes your God, and I don't care if it's golf or in my case scuba diving or the people who are very much into uh, biking or whatever it is, if it takes your attention away from God, then it's, it's not good and it's something that you should set aside. Okay, today we're going to begin in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to learn about a different judge. After the time of Deborah, there was peace in the land for 40 years, and then it wasn't very long before the people began to worship idols again. And part of the problem with that is that God does not like to share his glory with anything or anyone and so because the people turned to false gods God became very angry with them and he had already warned them you shall not worship any other God but but me as we know is the very first ten commandment of the ten commandments so obviously God being a jealous God was not going to put up with this and sure enough the Midianites the tree a tribe that were really just on the other side of the Jordan River came in and invaded and so a good portion of the central part of Israel was again occupied by foreign forces and and part of the problem with that was that the people could if they started to grow crops the Midianites would come in and um, destroy their crops and uh, camp on their land and just literally destroy everything and chase the people away so much so that the Israelites were hiding in caves and um, clefts of the rock uh, of the different mountains just trying to avoid being captured so that when they and yet they had to eat and the only way that they could survive was trying to scrape a, whatever they could from the land so we're going to begin today with Gideon a young man who was in a wine press trying to thresh wheat 
Now, I don't know how many of you know anything about threshing wheat, but it's a matter of hitting the wheat um, kernels, the little tops of the heads of the wheat chaff, and breaking up the uh, good part of the wheat from the shaft, the part that just they wanted to get rid of because it wasn't the flavor, uh, the part that had all the flavor in it. And so what happened was because the get, uh, the Israelites had such um, a poor chance of being able to bake bread or anything from the wheat they grew, they had to hide in different places and try and then thresh the, their wheat uh, whenever they could and wherever they could. And in this case we find that Gideon's using a wine press. Now when the wind comes through and blows the shaft away, that's part of the process of uh, making wheat into bread, you know, making the wheat itself into a flour that can be then used and ground down. But if that shaft is just, you know, it's really hard for that to happen if there isn't some wind. So we see that Gideon's down there working away, probably not having a whole lot of success. But he has no choice because if he's not hiding, then sure enough, the enemy will see him and they'll, they will just come and take away what little wheat he did manage to scrape up. So we see that, that Gideon is working away and an angel appears and this angel just sort of sits on the edge of the wine press and starts talking to him. At first, Gideon does not realize that this is an angel because he just continues with the conversation like it was just anybody else sitting there. He might not have actually looked up or might have glanced up and not really uh, paid much attention to who he was talking to, except that he knew it wasn't an enemy. It was somebody who, who was not there to hurt him. And so um, if for a minute, look at your map. Look back at the map of the 12 tribes. Gideon is in the uh, land of Manasseh, and that's the tribe he's from. And Manasseh is in the central area just above Ephraim, which was where Deborah was last in our last lesson. And so Manasseh, if you could remember back to when we studied about um, the 12 tribes of Israel beginning with Judah, the, the, the sons of Israel, who was Jacob, remember, and he had his various sons, one of which was uh, Joseph, the, the one with the coat of many colors, remember that? Well, Joseph had two sons, and instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, one of the things that um, Joseph asked of his father was that he would make his sons each um, uh, tribal leaders. And so sure enough, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became uh, basically equal status with their uncles. And so as the tribes began to settle in the area, and they, you know, of course they had children and more children, etc., and actually had some pretty good sized tribes, then we see that um, the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, they tend to stick together, and, and we will see that in this case as well. Take a minute to turn to Judges 6, and we're going to read verses 7 through 17. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the land of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. So we see that they were given a prophet that warned the people, and yet still their hearts were very hardened, and they very much worshipped their um, idol gods. 
So as I mentioned a minute ago, we find Gideon threshing wheat in this wine press. And in verse 11 it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Aberzite. Uh, I hope those are right, but they may not be. <laughs> Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the land, into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. All right, let's stop right there for a minute. We see that here Gideon pretty much gives a pretty good excuse, saying, well, I'm the smallest tribe, and I'm, this, I'm the runt of my family as it is, and you think that I'm going to be the one that's going to lead us in the fight against Midian? Um, I think up until this point, Gideon is has respect for this person because he says, you know, uh, but Lord, so I'm not sure if he, he realizes that he's speaking to an angel or a, thinks he's speaking to a prophet or... Maybe he just is think, sensing, well, this does sound like the word of the Lord. I think that sometimes we can be in the presence of an angel and not know it. And that God can speak to us. And we know that what we're hearing probably is from the Lord, even though we don't recognize who it's coming through. And I think that in this case, Gideon truly wants to believe that they can be uh, delivered from the Midianites but he can't see how it could happen and when he hears this from this messenger he really can't see how it could happen but it the thought encourages him and it gives him this this new hope and so because he he wants to believe this and because he's not really sure if this is a true message from the Lord he says if I found favor in your eyes give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I have come back, until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. But the Lord said, oh, and the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon, sure enough, he went, got a small goat, uh, cooked up the meat, uh, took some flour that he had already ground and made up a little uh, loaf of bread and cooked it up. And, you know, all that took some time. I'm sure that there was a sense of, well, if the angel's not there when I get back, I can have a nice lunch. Uh, but surprisingly enough, the, the messenger is still there. And we see that the messenger tells Gideon, take out the bread and the meat and put it on the this rock and then cover it with the broth. And then the angel takes its staff and touches this little pile of food and it instantly uh, is, erupts into flame and is uh, consumed. Isn't it interesting that the Lord uses fire so many times just it sounds so similar to what Moses went through when he came across the burning bush um, that God uses something that kind of frightens us and causes us to step back a moment and as soon as this happens Gideon 
instantly realizes that he really is in the presence of God. And so he's a little bit afraid. In fact, his, his response is, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So you can tell there's a, suddenly a fear and a realization that he is in the presence of holiness. And it's in that moment that the Lord says to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. Because the theory then was, if you saw God, you were going to die. In fact, they had been taught that from the time of Moses, and they were right. If people tried to take advantage or somehow uh, presume upon God, go into the Holy of Holies or touch the Ark of the Covenant, when they were not uh, in the proper standing, a priest or whatever, then they would they would die. So here we have Gideon suddenly realizing he's been in the presence of the Lord and fearful. But the, when the angel says to him, peace, do not be afraid, um, what happens then is that Gideon builds an altar and, the, and it's called the Lord is peace. And, and it says to this day it stands in this, the same place where um, the angel appeared. I don't know if it still is there. This was centuries ago, but at the time of the writing of the book of Judges, um, that that altar was still there. And so we, we see that uh, God is our peace. And one of the thing, reasons we can know that is because he shows us his grandeur. He shows us it in many ways, and I've mentioned before, he shows it, us in nature. He shows us in supernatural ways, in his protection of us in miracles, sometimes in the simplest of just the sweetness of his presence. If you will let God uh, come near, you will experience his presence. But I know so many of us get busy and we don't necessarily stop and listen and wait on the Lord. But here, the fact that Gideon was willing to listen to this messenger, take the message, even though it sounded crazy, um, Give an offering as if to say, well, just in case it is God, and then be assured that it was. And he knew at that moment it was God. He knew that God was going to use him in a mighty way. Um, right after this, God, the Lord says to him, Gideon, I want you to go tear down those those gods that you're, of your fathers and build an altar and then put use those wooden poles that, that you all are worshiping as um, basically the, the wood that's going to be burned in the fire and then sacrifice one of his cows, a seven-year-old cow, and put it on that altar. And this will be an altar to me, to the God. And so Gideon understands this, and yet he decides to wait until the, it's night because he doesn't want anybody to see him. And it's interesting to me that he's willing to obey God. He's just not willing to obey God out in front of everybody. I think because he was, of course, afraid. You think, oh, he's going to be a mighty warrior. But his nature was not one of a mighty warrior. His nature was one of a fearful uh, youngster, the youngest in his family. I don't know how many of you are the youngest in your family, but one of the things you learn pretty quick is that you can get pounced on pretty easily, that your older brothers or sisters pretty much can dominate because they're older and they're bigger and they know more and they've had longer to have influence with your parents. And so when you're the youngest, you tend to be kind of careful about what you, how you step out uh, against the rest of your brothers and sisters, certainly against your parents. And so we see that Gideon follows the Lord in 
in obedience, and yet he does it at night. Well, um, in the morning, the townspeople see what has happened, and they are furious, and some they find out that it was Gideon, and they decide to kill him. And so they're getting ready to storm the their father's his uh, Gideon's father's house and drag Gideon away and have him stoned. And yet his father steps forward and he says, "You know what? If God, if this is a crime against our gods, in this case the god is Baal uh, and Asherah." then let them take you know fight for themselves and basically he says if Baal's so great he can he'll destroy he'll take matters into his own hands and he'll uh, destroy my son so you know you can kind of see that God doesn't in this case God is saying if you're if these gods are so great then you know if you stand up against him what will happen and obviously nothing happened to Gideon he you know he obviously was following what the true God wanted and could ignore the townspeople and they all agreed well okay if 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 he's done something that's so sacrilegious he will suffer for it let me take a minute to talk about these two gods Baal and Asherah Asherah they talk about Asherah poles in the Old Testament and basically they sound like I think Asherah was kind of a female god that of the locals there and what they did was they would take poles and like make carvings in the pole I kind of think of a kind of like in a totem pole if you've seen a totem pole before you know how there's different faces and they in a totem pole and how they're they were given the uh, deity uh, features uh, it's the same sort of thing and then these poles would be worshipped as if they actually contained the spirit of the god the word Baal could refer to any number of deities, local deities. Sometimes they even would refer to uh, the god as Baal, but uh, as uh, time went on, they began to distinguish between the god, the one true god, and all of the mystic beliefs that the um, local uh, tribes came up with, and, be, and it became a thing of shame to be associated with Baal which uh, rightly so okay so Gideon has destroyed these all this uh, these gods and has gotten into all kinds of trouble for it and yet his dad stood up for him so um, let's look here a minute and see what happens actually about this time do you think that Gideon's father's response convinced the people not to kill Gideon uh, I would say that his father stood up and said well let Baal you know fight for himself I think the people were still greatly offended but it bought Gideon some time all right so so Gideon has already kind of started off not on the best foot with the local people he you know making him definitely made a name for himself because now they call him Jeru Baal or whatever as if one who contends with Baal all right next we see that in the latter part of chapter 6 starting with verse 33 Okay, here we see that the Midianites and the Malachites and a bunch of others are all joining forces and they're all coming in to attack Israel. And in this, the Lord, the Spirit, just sort of speaks to Gideon and, and he stands up, blows this trumpet, and starts gathering people to fight against them. And in this process, he's sending messengers throughout all Manasseh, calling them to arms, um, into Asher, Zebulun, Nethali, 
so that they too could come up to meet with with him and and fight this army of uh, enemies it's in this that that Gideon begins to have second thoughts because he says to God if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised do you notice the if there even though he knows God promised he's not sure if God can do it so he says look I will place a wool, uh, wool fleece on the threshing floor if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry around it then I will know you will save Israel by my hand as you said and sure enough that's what happened the next day this if you've heard the phrase throwing out a fleece it's kind of a popular phrase for trying to determine what God wants you to do you're just going to throw out a fleece well in this case that's where this comes from is that Gideon put out this fleece and said okay if there's dew on the fleece but all the grounds dry then sure enough I, I know God's at work So the next morning he returns, squeezes a bowl full of water out of that fleece, and the ground all around is dry. He's still not quite convinced, and so he doesn't want to make God angry, but he says, let me just make one more request. Allow me to, to test this with the fleece one more time. This time if the fleece is dry and the ground is dew all around it, um, then I'll really know you're, you're at work here. So sure enough, the next morning, the fleece was dry and the ground all around was covered with dew. We have many times debated among the Christian community about whether it's wise to put out tests for God and say, God, if you do this, then I'll know I'm supposed to do that. Remember that this angel had already t confirmed that he was to lead Israel and God had already told him in his spirit, you will save Israel by my hand. Gideon knew what was being asked of him and yet it's at this time that his faith wavers and he's not sure if he has the courage and the faith to move forward so he asks God to give him a confidence in this personally I don't think it's wrong to ask God to give you a peace in your heart and a certainty that what you're about to do based on the direction he's given you that, that you should continue in that way and or that you should move at that time and yet at the same time I also know that it's it's dangerous to test the Lord to um, it's similar to what Satan did with Jesus when he tempts him he says well if you're God jump off this mountain because angels will come and lift you up and Jesus says you know it is wrong to put the Lord your God to a test and so we have to be very careful that when we're confirming God's will, that we're not testing God. It's a difference, I think, in attitude, whereas one is trusting God and needing his nearness and needing his certainty, whereas the other one is doubting God and almost challenging God to prove you, you know, right, that sure enough, God's not going to take care of me. Kind of like those of you that saw the movie Forrest Gump this is kind of dating me but there's the scene where Captain uh, Lieutenant Dan is up on this um, mast in a basically a hurricane and he is um, 
railing against God, saying, go ahead, God, do your best. I think we need to be really careful when we challenge God, because you know what? We are humans, and God is God. And I think in a time like that, it would be just as easy for God to just flick you off the earth as anything. But the attitude with Gideon is not one of, you know, challenging God. It's really one of being sure that God's with him. And so sure enough, uh, he then moves forward and he begins to compile this army. But God keeps telling him, you've got too many men. You've got too many men. And so he whittles the group back and he whittles the group back. Finally gets to this point where he says, well, you still have too many. Take, you know, go take the men down to get some water. And the ones that scoop up the water and kind of lap it with their tongue, have those go with you. And the others that just kind of bend down and suck up the water, let them stay behind. And so only 300 men were lapped up the water. And so that was Gideon's army, 300 men. Now remember, there were so many Midianites and Amalekites and all the other Eastern people that they couldn't even count them. There were so many. And so here we see just basically a handful in Gideon's army. And yet that's what God was doing. He was making sure that Gideon trusted him and not uh, the forces of his many, you know, army. And in that, and God had already assured him. He'd already said, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm doing this. Uh, Here's how I want you to make it happen. Gideon became a man of faith because he was willing to step out and trust God each step of the way. Even when he wasn't sure, even though his knees were shaking, he kept moving forward because God was pushing him and because he knew and trusted that God had brought him this far and he would take him the rest of the way. We see that many times in scripture where the person being compelled to move forward pauses and and they're, they're kind of like, okay, can I go the next step? They don't just jump in many times, sometimes they do, but rarely do they just jump in forward and say, okay, I know what God wants me to do and they run off and do it. In the same way, it should be with us. There's a time to stop and, and let God, not to get ahead of God, to let him lead you step by step. Because that's how we know that we're doing it in God's strength and not in our own. Okay, in the uh, interest of time, I'm going to skip a little bit here. And, and we will see that, sure enough, they uh, fight. And there there's a little scene right before the battle where God tells Gideon to take one of his guys and head down to the camp and sneak down there and just listen to the enemy. And when they do, they hear one of the enemy's uh, soldiers saying that he had this dream and it was, you know, it was about this giant loaf of bread that came tumbling into the midst of their camp. And one of his buddies says, oh, that surely means that Gideon's going to overtake us. You know, it's funny to me that that Gideon was a nobody just a short time before this. And now they have all heard of him and they're all afraid. And I think that can only be God going before him and making uh, a name for him and, and driving fear into the enemy. And I think it's the same as when we proclaim the name of Christ, when we go forth in in Jesus' name, and that frightens the enemy. Okay, when when Gideon hears this, he's encouraged, and he says, okay, it's time, we're going to go into battle. Now, the plan of action for the battle 
is that the soldiers for Gideon will have a lantern in one hand that's covered up, a, a lamp, like a torch, that's covered up with, um, so that it, it's kept dark uh, with a pot. And then they will have uh, a trumpet in the other hand. So there's no hand left for a sword or anything, any other kind of a fighting instrument. There's only a horn and a, and a light. And I think that's so interesting that God says, you know what, I'm going to do the fighting. You just have to do the things I told you. I want you to blow this horn when the time comes. And I want you to break that lamp and shine your light. And if, I don't know, if I'd been one of those soldiers, I would have said, Gideon, are you sure? Let's go back to the fleece because <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Those guys out there, they have real swords. But that's, Gideon was faithful. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And that's what they did. They surrounded the enemy's camp. And when, they, when Gideon told them, blow your horn, they all blow, blew their horns and broke their lamps, uh, their pots, so that their lights would shine. And the enemy was so taken aback and so thrown into chaos that they began fighting each other and running off. And it was at this point that Gideon got the rest of his army and says, come on, we're going to go after him. And so they chased them through the night, through the next day. It is not an easy battle for Gideon's people because it's exhausting. You know, one of the things about when the enemy runs away and you have to f track them down and, um, you know, to destroy them. You just can't then say, oh, well, you know, we, look, we got them to run off. The point was that they needed to destroy the enemy or they were going to just come right back. You know, it was just going to be left to fight another day. So, sure enough, uh, they are victorious and and defeat the Midianites. And we see here that the people respond to um, Gideon by saying, we want you to be our king. You know, you're a mighty warrior. We want you to be our king. And Gideon says, no, the Lord will rule over you. He is our king. Sadly, we'll see in a few weeks that Israel rejects their king and decides that they want an earthly king instead. But at this point, the people say, okay, what can we do for you? And Gideon says, well, if each one of you give me an earring. And what he does is he takes all this gold and builds a, a monument. Now, I'm sure it was a monument to God, but it takes no time before the people begin to worship it, like they did the golden calf, as if it were God. And I think that we have to be so careful in this day and age of not worshiping the results, the, the outward um impressions of God instead of worshiping who God really is, the God of Scripture, the God who is uh, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, who knows and, and controls everything in our life, instead of the things of God, the creation, the uh, your church or your church body or your, your, um, your religious peripheral um, habits. Those are not God. God is who he is and worshiping him means worshiping him on his terms. Okay, next we see that just as we did with Deborah, that God can use the weak and the and put us in impossible situations. Obviously this was an impossible situation for Gideon. And finally that he asks us to do impossible things because he wants the glory. He He will be the one who people look to and say, well, it had to be God. There's no way that Gideon could have done that with those 300 people. And God loves that. He loves to be 
given the glory and the honor and worshipped because of who he is and what he can, what he is. And um, one of the ways he can prove to us who he is is in impossible situations. Okay, next week we are going to talk about Samson. He's quite a different judge. So far we've seen two very meek judges. We are going to seek, see next week a very... Uh, strong judge, one who is very self-sufficient. And as we have seen with the two previous judges that they just are, they have to rely on God. We will see that, that next week, Samson, uh, he has to learn that lesson. He doesn't just get it right off the bat. So I want to encourage you to continue in your reading of the book of Judges, particularly read through chapter 16. And we will talk, and if you get a chance to do your homework lessons, remember the answers to the lessons for the most part are in the, on the website, basicbible101.com. And of course there are maps and hopefully you did the quiz last week and uh, got, saw the answers which were listed right down at the very bottom of that quiz and that you just got 100 on it. Okay, thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.